Author David Wallace Wells begins The Uninhabitable Earth, his book about climate change, writing, It is worse. Much worse than you think. Then what follows is a several hundred page survey of just exactly how f***ed we are. Wallace Wells' book isn't a guide for changing course. Mostly it endeavors to paint an accurate, which is to say bleak, picture of what happens if we don't change course. We all live within climate, Wallace Wells writes, and within all the changes we have produced in it, which enclose us all and everything we do. Later, he writes, climate change isn't something happening here or there, but everywhere and all at once. And unless we choose to halt it, it will never stop. We're going to get to the sound stuff eventually. Normally, we start focused and get big picture by the end, but this episode of Reasonably Sound is more of an hourglass shape, not just because time is running out. We'll talk about the ecological impact of vinyl records and digital music streaming, but first, some broad points following Wallace Wells, choosing to halt climate change and living completely inside it. The question of choice when it comes to climate responsibility is complicated. So much of modernity is the individual bargaining between bad and worse. Our circumstances are ostensibly built in response to our desires, but our cultural and economic infrastructure guides us as much as, if not more so, than it responds to us. We require things of our built environment up to a point, after which it requires much of us including compliance. We often feel powerless to impact our circumstances. How do we, scare quotes, choose, scare quotes, to fix, scare quotes, it, scare quotes. No matter how out of control the climate system seems, Wallace Wells writes, with its roiling typhoons, unprecedented famines and heat waves, refugee crises, and climate conflicts, we are all its authors, and still writing. He clarifies that, quote, some, like our oil companies and their political patrons, are much more prolific authors than others, but the burden of responsibility is too great to be shouldered by a few, however comforting it is to think all that is needed is for a few villains to fall. Having a scapegoat is a comfort, it's true, but so is thinking that we have agency, it's mollifying to consider that we may invest collective effort as citizens or consumers and write the burning, sinking earth ship. Electric cars and hydro flasks provide us some means to these ends within the narrow corral of contemporary life. Power is often designed to make us question the efficacy of our actions. I mean, why bother doing anything else? It's not like it'd work. Small actions produce a comfort because the work of reconfiguring the economic landscape, getting corporations to stop producing or relying on petroleum products, is nearly unthinkable. Resource extraction companies, automobile manufacturers, agribusiness, financial institutions that invest in polluting endeavors, and so on, and so on, and so on. Getting them to behave differently is less a problem to solve and more of a Zen koan for emptying the mind of conscious thought. What is a habitable earth? And how do we make one? What is a habitable earth? 
And how do we make one? What is a habitable Earth? And how do we make one? Ugh, f*** it, I'm just going to buy a Prius. But small actions also produce an anxiety because they're small. They're reminders of what is bad, with no clear force exerted on improving the badness. It's like shouting at the plastic-filled ocean. I'm not going to say you should do nothing, or that the things that you are doing are meaningless. You can, and you should, and you must do any and everything that you possibly can to ameliorate the climate crisis, and communicate the importance of doing that to your community. But that scale slides. The richest 10% of people in the world are responsible for nearly 50% of total global, quote, lifestyle consumption emissions. The poorest 50% of people are responsible for only 10% of emissions. If you have more, there's more that you can do without. And you gotta. Like, li literally, you must. Or else. And just to be clear, according to Credit Suisse's 2018 World Wealth Report, if you have a net worth of just over $4,000, that means if the value of everything you own minus your debts equals more than $4,000, you're more wealthy than 50% of the world. If you're worth over about $93,000, you're in the top 10% of global citizens. So I'm definitely talking directly to at least a portion of you listening to this podcast right now. There is more you can, should, and must do. But then you'll ask, honestly, like, what do I do? What do I do? The big ticket items like going cold turkey on petroleum would be extremely difficult. I mean, many consumers will just, they'll await regulation. But for those who would proactively abstain, alternatives are slim. Plus, there are things you can't choose. As Miriam Nielsen puts it on YouTube, link in the show notes at reasonablysound.com. Maybe some individual action can change some stuff, but plenty of things require systematic structural change. If I wanted my city to only use electric garbage trucks, for example, that needs government action. I can't do it myself. That process begins first with choosing civic engagement, which is itself a time and resource intensive process that has uncertain ends. That's kind of what this episode is about. The in-everythingness of climate change and the deep ambivalence that's born of the knowledge that one can act and the mystery of those actions' effectiveness against the additional knowledge that things have to change. And they got to change now. So we can't just keep going around doing nothing. We're going to talk about vinyl records and music streaming and how, while they might not be nearly as bad as combustion engines, they're certainly not great for the environment. They're a testament to the fact that climate change is everywhere and a case study in how individual choice and personal sacrifice feels meaningless, though is perhaps necessary, if only for what it represents in the short term. First, how vinyl records were made, and how they are made.
At one point, records were made by bugs, sort of. Uh, before they were made from vinyl, records were made of a material produced by bugs. The lac bug, a tree-dwelling insect found in India and Thailand. As these bugs travel up and down the branches of their tree, they eat sap and they excrete a thick, resinous substance, quote, almost constantly. The bugs are named after the Sanskrit word lak, L-A-H-K, meaning 100,000. So that should give you a sense of how many bugs per tree we're talking about here, and also how dense that secretion. Farmers would collect the branches covered in this plasticky substance, at this point called stick lac, and shave it off into thin, curved sheets. Now, this makes it seed lac. In his book Echosonic Media, Jason Smith describes a process in the mid-1930s at the height of lac production, and in the northern Indian states of Bihar and Jharkhand, where the lac-producing industry was centralized. Once shaved from the branch, seed lac was crushed by foot in large stone tubs. The shards were placed in a porous bag, held over a coal flame, and melted. The molten product would seep through the bag, leaving behind bits of branch and dirt, and it would be stretched into thin square sheets that were dried, cooled, and cut into, quote, shell-like shapes, thus producing shell lac, or more commonly, shellac. You might know shellac from its numerous other applications uh, as a primer, sealant, stain, or varnish for wood surfaces. Even though it's not commonly used anymore, my father still refers to sealing a wood surface as shellacking it. It was also used as an early plastic for home goods, jewelry, and electrical parts. It was, for a while, the exclusive glue of ballerina shoes, as well as a protective coating for paintings and braille. And up until the 1950s, shellac was used to make records. Around about the 19th century, records were pressed using a mix of shellac and other various binding and coloring goops and powders. Actually, mostly binding and coloring goops and powders, including slate and limestone, and only as much shellac as was strictly necessary to give the records a malleable shape. Previously, recordable cylinders were made with a kind of wax or foil or rubber, and so they were fragile. They could dry out, they could crack, they were easily damaged. Shellac provided a plentiful, malleable, and robust enough alternative for flat 78 RPM records. It could be pressed into a playable disc at relatively low heat, with relatively little pressure, and the scrap could be recycled back into the production line. In fact, shellac was not only recyclable, but biodegradable it being a bioplastic produced by tree-dwelling critters. This became important during the mid-century Western war effort, when significant portions of available materials were diverted to the manufacture of goods for combat. Shellac drives were held to collect records and other melt-downable sources from the public who were compensated for their offerings in trade or payment. Smith writes, the big record producers worked with a number of different organizations in the pursuit of scrap. They made agreements with theater operators so that patrons could pay admission in old records. They worked with urban ballrooms to host disc nights where customers were given credit for old records. But, Smith goes on to point out, 
Neither scrap drives nor wartime shortages slowed American consumerism. The demand for recorded music persisted, while theoretically exhaustible shellac stores were diverted to Uncle Sam. Plus, shellac made good records, but not great records. The cleaning and straining process, the transition from seed lac to shell lac, was inexact and left lots of imperfections in the feedstock, dirt, bug chunks, etc. This led to wild variance in production quality and, on the whole, somewhat noisy records with an overall sound kind of like bacon sizzling. Shellac records were also easily broken, and they degraded over time, especially under the weight of certain needles used to play the discs. Every play would subtly shave away some surface area, dulling and quieting the sound. And finally, after the war, when price restrictions were lifted, shellac's cost skyrocketed. So the record industry was incentivized, several times over, to find a replacement. Huh. What to do, what to do. Ha! I know, I'll tell you what, plastics. Plastics were regarded as a kind of miracle composite. It was both post-war manufacturing capability and the belief in better living through chemistry that led to plastic sudden proliferation. A synthetic material of theoretically infinite supply, no bugs needed, just science, plastic could take on any and every shape forever. The world could be remade over and over and over again in whatever form desired and however often, thanks to the vast plenitude of the material conjured through simple human ingenuity. And truly, the world was remade, just not exactly as intended. The vinyl in vinyl record is short for polyvinyl chloride, which you may know from its other name, PVC. PVC is made primarily from two sources, crude oil and salt. Crude is heated and put under extreme pressure, which separates it out into a few component parts. This process is called cracking, and among other things, it produces ethylene, a gas which is cooled and turned into a liquid. The salt, often collected from seawater, is electrolyzed, which changes its molecular structure, and chlorine is extracted. The chlorine and ethylene are chemically combined, forming ethylene dichloride, which is a liquid at room temperature. EDC, as it's called, is itself subjected to that same cracking process the petroleum underwent, which produces a vinyl chloride monomer, or VCM, a gas at room temperature. VCM is polymerized, meaning it undergoes a process whereby the molecules join, and this turns it into a PVC resin, a powder. This PVC powder is then compounded with other powders and goops to make the final vinyl compound, which will differ depending upon if the thing to be made is pipes or toys or records. This process alone requires a lot of resources, including petroleum and or natural gas. But alongside those non-renewable, polluting resources, the process also creates additional pollutants, including dioxins, highly toxic, fat-soluble poisons that can make their way into the food chain. Not long after heralding plastics as the savior of the material economy, probably about 20 or so years, fear that it was causing cancer in factory workers responsible for its production began to arise. 
due to their exposure to vinyl chloride specifically. And the CDC does in fact state that studies of workers who have breathed vinyl chloride over many years show an increased risk for cancer of the liver. Brain cancer, lung cancer, and some cancers of the blood also may be connected with breathing vinyl chloride over long periods. So we're not exactly off to a good start here. When making a record, which isn't nearly as dangerous as making vinyl chloride itself, a small vinyl puck, or a hopper full of vinyl pellets, are melted and pressed into a mold. The mold is made from a metal master disc, a form with all of the grooves and patterns which, when dragged upon by your needle on your record player, it produces sound. So that metal master disc is smooshed into molten vinyl, and this may be an automatic machine process or done by hand where a worker manually loads and presses the feedstock in what looks, essentially, like a giant, round panini machine. Either way, a significant amount of pressure is needed to press those records. This requires the use of hydraulics, usually. Steam heat is also often used to keep the molds warm, thus melting the raw vinyl to the appropriate temperature, which means that someone has to maintain a boiler which is itself a resource-intensive process that both relies on and produces pollutants. As each record is pressed, excess from the material smushed between the mold plates is cut off and discarded. Unlike shellac, extra vinyl can't be reused in the production process, or after it, for that matter. Vinyl is non-recyclable, at least for a good number of its uses. You may read that it's recyclable, and it is true that you can bring vinyl, which is coded 3 in the American Plastics Recycling System, to a very small number of transfer stations, but it is not so much recycled as it is reused. It's shredded or chipped and used to make speed bumps. That's not a joke. It's also used to make mud flaps and gutters. But that process is costly, complex, and comes with its own polluting process, since subjecting finished PVC goods to heat is, well, it's a process that's gross and bad as putting it lightly. But even if it were easy, and cost-effective, and safe to remelt and reuse pre-existing vinyl to make LPs, a huge premium is placed on the use of what is called, get ready to cringe, you ready? Virgin vinyl. Ew. Like shellac's minor imperfections producing noisy records, only the brandest new of brand new vinyl feedstock sounds crispity clear, with minimal hissing, popping, and other such sonic aberrations considered anathema to audiophiles. So reusing pre-existing vinyl to press new records is a non-starter on several fronts. Which means, records, once they're made, they sit around. For a while. I mean, you've been to the Goodwill. You know what I'm talking about. Vinyl is non-biodegradable, with estimates of its durability ranging from 150 to hundreds, if not thousands of years, depending upon the composition of the particular object. Discogs, the physical media collecting and marketplace website, recently tweeted one of those change my mind memes, where the sign reads, vinyl isn't going anywhere, and... I mean, they're not wrong. Jason Smith describes all vinyl records, every single one across the whole planet, all together as a hyper object, a kind of super thing, which is so vast and distributed that it defeats human ideas and perceptions of time and space. A hyper object is so giant, so weird and permanent 
that it's hard for us to fully comprehend it. Which brings us back to scale. How much vinyl is there, really? How bad is it, really? Are there alternatives, really? All that after a short break. Really. Let's do the numbers. The height of vinyl production was in the United States in 1977. That year, 344 million LPs were sold. According to research done by Matt Brennan at the University of Glasgow and Kyle Devine at the University of Oslo for their Cost of Music project, that amounted to roughly 58 million kilograms of plastic and 140 million kilograms of greenhouse emissions. To give you a sense, based on my calculations informed by emissions data from the EPA, that's about the same emissions output as roughly 30,000 cars for a single year in the early 21st century, give or take. This is some real back of the napkin, or I guess back of the record sleeve math. It's all based on the EPA's standard of a car with, quote, a fuel economy of about 22 miles per gallon that drives around 11,500 miles per year. So. In 2017, 14,300,000 LPs were sold in the US. That was up 9% from 2016 and up from the all-time low in 2005, which was 205,000 units sold. According to the Nielsen Midyear Report for 2019, vinyl sales are already up another 9% so far, having sold 7.7 million units since January 1st. That is still, brief pause to push my non-existent glasses further up my nose, between 30 and 40 million kilograms of greenhouse emissions per year. Or, given my rough calculations, the yearly emissions for something like 4,000 average combustion engine automobiles in the United States. This is to say nothing of the additional cost of packaging, labeling, or shipping, the additional material costs of creating and distributing a full product, not just a naked plastic disc with music on it, nor the previously discussed secondary pollutants like scrap, dioxins, and boiler maintenance. But luckily, there are some notable efforts to ameliorate the environmental impact of vinyl LP production. We're going to talk about two of them. But first, a little history lesson on the machines that make records. As recently as a decade ago, there was, basically, no new vinyl manufacturing equipment. It was all the old stuff that had been around for years, decades, half centuries. During that slump in production, plants closed, sometimes left their machinery abandoned. Billboard even proclaimed in 2016 that no one makes the machines anymore. So when the resurgence, that's with a capital T and a capital R, began, there was a run on all available vinyl pressing machinery. It was bought at auction, cobbled together from parts, repaired from near, total ruin, hunted and sought after the world over. As record sales swang up, it's a swing, swinged up? Upswinged? Upswang? Anyways, eventually it became clear that LP demand would outpace available machinery. So, 
In the last decade or so, a few manufacturers of vinyl pressing machines have cropped up with some notable improvements. There are two endeavors worth talking about. The first is electric press systems that do away with hydraulics and steam. And the second is green disc manufacturing. In 2017, Viral Technologies, spelled V-I-R-Y-L, announced their warm tone presses, new record pressing machines updated with modern features. With one exception, they still needed a boiler. The pressure needed to press the raw vinyl biscuit into a record shape and have it effectively imprinted was achieved hydraulically, and the heat used to melt the biscuit itself reached with boiler water. This produces a lot of waste. Not only waste water from the system itself, but also the various fuels and chemicals needed to run, maintain, and clean a boiler that produces steam. Like much of this industry, it's a big, dumb, gross process. In 2018, Viral announced their steamless system, which Engadget called an industry first. Instead of using a boiler, normally heated by oil or gas, it's all done with electricity. No more wastewater, much less plumbing, no more cleaning and maintenance of fuel and pressure lines. This solves one problem, in one way, the resource drain needed to melt and press PVC into a playable object. There's still the question of how your electricity is supplied. Wind? Solar? Coal? This is different depending upon where you are. And this also doesn't solve arguably the biggest problem. Viral's systems, which have been installed in more than a few new plants, are still designed to use non-biodegradable, dioxin-producing PVC. Enter the Green Vinyl Project, a consortium of eight Dutch companies which claim that they're developing an electric machine which works by injection molding rather than pressing. Injection molding is how they make, um, you know, like action figures, uh, plastic car parts, your television's plastic chassis, etc., etc. It kind of works like how it sounds. A two-part mold is pressed together and molten plastic is forcefully injected into it, filling every nook and cranny. The mixture is cooled, the mold is separated, and you get your final product, like a, you know, He-Man. But more importantly, Green Vinyl is also attempting to reformulate the plastic used to make records. What is that reformulated plastic? That is a good question. The most I can find is an employee of the plastics manufacturing arm saying that they are very excited to attempt solving this problem. Will the injection molding process be high enough resolution to make listenable records? Also a good question. The most I can find is an explanation of how the machine is built from a repurposed laser disc printer. Oh, and um, one of the eight companies in the consortium is Simcon, a Dutch optical disc manufacturer. How far along are they? Good question. The last post on their website is from about six, seven months ago, and it details how excited they are to share their findings, whatever those are, with others in the industry. I did find an old video with a very scratchy, bacon sizzly sounding prototype. So I reached out uh, to ask them some questions and find out where they were. And I was connected with uh, Simcon's Harm Thinis. Harm, if you listen to this, I'm very sorry for butchering your name, um, who... Uh, didn't return multiple requests for comment on status. So Harm, uh, if you listen to this also, uh, email me back, my dude. Uh, I want to know what's up. 
The Green Vinyl Project isn't the only game in town when it comes to attempts at rethinking LP plastics. It's just the most present. It's the most Googleable. You know, like they hired a graphic designer and a webmaster. I, don't know. <laughs> uh, I guess suddenly it's 1998 again. Anyway, there are folks here in the United States that are experimenting with PET, the kind of uh, plastic that soda bottles are made of, which comes with its own set of extremely complex problems. I'm sure you've listened to some podcast episodes about that. There's a conference in LA this fall that is at least partially concerned with the problem of LP manufacturing. And of course, there are all kinds of other approaches, like Maybe you print the labels affixed to your LPs on recycled paper and with biodegradable ink. You or your record label might purchase carbon offsets, not just for manufacturing your records, but also shipping them, or even the process of recording them if you can't find a recording studio that's run entirely on renewable energy. But I mean, just, ugh, right? Like, at that point, maybe you're just like, fuck it. How about just no more records? Let's just go totally digital. And then you don't have to deal with any of this material waste or the byproducts of physical media. I mean, you still have to power a recording studio, but at least you don't have to press print package or ship anything. Well, remember Wallace Wells, climate change is in everything we do, including, and by some measures, especially music streaming. In Matt Brennan and Kyle Devine's Cost of Music project, they estimate that at the height of MP3 downloading, the era of the iTunes store from about 2013 to 2016, the total carbon emissions of the recorded music industry as a whole actually went up, not down, from 56 million kilograms of plastic production around the year 2000 to 61 million kilograms in 2013 through 2016. Greenhouse emissions increased from 157 million kilograms to somewhere between 200 and over 350 million kilograms. How, you may ask? If there's less stuff, how can there be more emissions? Well, I mean, the material history of the MP3 doesn't stretch as far back as that of the record, but it's just as storied and intensive, just not so obviously. Like the plastic that came before it, digital bits were and are regarded as infinitely malleable, a non-expendable resource of infinite costless supply. And it turns out that that is not exactly the case. MP3s or MP4s or FLAC or AUG files, etc., 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 they're made of something. Though we may think of them as ephemeral, disposable, as your standard issue aging aesthete may put it, digital music is, in fact, material. Individual files are individually distinguishable. They can and do possess their own qualities. They're collected, and in some cases, valued. They need to be somewhere. They must be stored, maintained, archived. They have to be cared for, lest they degrade, or more likely in the age of digital excess, simply deleted. Spotify, iTunes, YouTube, Pandora, Amazon, Google Streaming, etc. All of it involves the movement of material goods, near weightless and practically invisible, but physical and requiring energy nonetheless. Just as a record needs pressing, shipping, and then spinning, bits must be encoded, transferred, and decoded. Each of these steps, taken in various data centers and upon countless devices across the world, requires electricity. Media, even and apparently especially digital media, requires fuel to be found, transferred, 
stored, opened, and enjoyed. This sort of thing is clear as the ring of a bell upon consideration, but these points have somehow avoided much of the musical and environmental discourse. We talk about how much energy it takes to sustain Bitcoin, that of a small country. How can we let this continue? But entertainment, like Netflix or music streaming, is often discussed in terms of its number of users or its total percent of internet traffic, as if we're discussing an impressive milestone that we've all collaborated to achieve. Resource drain, environmental impact, they are largely, though granted not entirely, absent from that conversation. So, after a short break, the real size of that impact, for music streaming at least, and some insight about why it's important for us to think of this stuff as lovers of music, from someone who literally wrote the book on it. Matt Brennan and Kyle Devine found that plastic production decreased in the age of music downloading. But they purposefully don't count the devices which serve or play downloaded music. No emissions nor plastic counted for the construction of servers, cables, computers, iPods, smartphones. So that is less of a silver lining and more of a big gray smoggy clouds, really. Sorry. In the present age of streaming, which hath followed the age of downloading, well, Brandon and Devine left that to be concluded, both as far as greenhouse emissions and plastic use. That stuff is going to be discussed in Kyle's forthcoming book, Decomposed, The Political Ecology of Music. But he was kind enough to hop on the phone with me from Oslo to chat about his more recent findings. I'm Kyle Devine. I'm the head of research and an associate professor in the Department of Musicology at the University of Oslo. First, Kyle let me know that the methodology for putting more recent figures together was complicated. Piecemeal is the word he used. Through a combination of Greenpeace's Click Clean scorecard, which measures the environmental impact of web services, and sales numbers from the RIAA, as well as research into how much electricity it takes to transfer a gigabyte of data and other various sources, Kyle was able to pull together an idea of the emissions output for the digital music streaming era, the one that we currently live in. His result? Of course things are changing, right? And so I had to go in and do a bunch of extra stuff in the book. I, it's probably not that exciting to you to learn that the basic figures from around 2015, 2016 are the ones that I had to go with in the book. One of the underlying methods of calculation in this came from what I think even now is one of the best estimates of the amount of electricity it takes to download a gigabyte of data in developed countries. That research was valid for 2015-2016. And that that number is constantly going down as things get more efficient. The amount of streaming is constantly going up, so my estimate would be that that any gains in efficiency of electricity usage by, you know, through downloading and streaming uh, would probably be offset by overall increases in internet usage and data streaming and things like that. That would be my estimate based on the research I've done so far. So basically, while things aren't getting any worse, they're also not getting any better. One positive of all of this is that 
As the climate crisis concerns an increasing number of consumers, companies feel pressured to talk about it more, to disclose their impact and efforts at ameliorating the damage that they're doing. As of a few years ago, Spotify was running its own data centers and was powered nearly 70% by gas, coal, or nuclear, which Greenpeace doesn't count as clean energy. Recently, Spotify has posted about how their data center emissions are down some significant percent. But Kyle also noticed that they had started migrating to a Google-based cloud service and had, perhaps as a result, decommissioned most, if not all, of their own servers. So, yeah, while maybe their emissions dropped, is that because Google's increased? One of the things that they were saying in those reports I have these in, in footnotes in the book now. One of the things they were saying in the reports is, is you know, from 2017 to 2018, their their electricity usage for their servers went down. But the main reason for that, as far as I can tell, is that they decommissioned their own servers and didn't include <laughs> any data from Google in their reports. Kyle was quick to point out that Google, too, says that they're trying to do their part. But like Spotify being opaque about their reduced emissions, you can't really know what that means. And even if they're doing something, it's not really clear that it helps. Buying offsets is basically meaningless. And they say they've offset their data center power requirements with solar, but there's a controversy around solar panels because, depending, those might require petroleum to produce or rely on other contentious materials and processes. So maybe now you're getting a sense of why Kyle's methods had to be so piecemeal. We're largely in the humid, murky dark concerning the corporate world's environmental ruin. We don't really know how bad it is. Or good, I guess. But I mean, come on, it's probably bad. Alphabet, Google's parent company, did release a shareholder report about how climate change might be positive for the brand if people use Google Earth satellite images to survey the changing coastlines of a sinking world. So, yeah, there are a lot of reasons companies wouldn't be transparent about this stuff. No, I'm just kidding. There's one reason. It's profit. Shareholders only want to hear about how great everything is going. They want to make a lot of money until they can't anymore, at which point they're going to change or they're going to do the math and figure out that they're going to die soon. So whatever. So what happens is corporations evince modest progress while continuing to rely on fossil fuels. And we, consumers, nod along and don't demand to know how much of an accessory to planetary destruction we are because, one, that's sad and scary, and two... Consumer relations to corporate structures and corporate partnerships themselves make a kind of hall of mirrors when it comes to figuring out who's responsible and who's accountable. So I say this in the book, which is that, you know, the move in streaming to and all over the Internet to to cloud based server platforms in a way allows them to subcontract or, or offload their consciousness of the environmental issues associated with the service that they offer to a large extent. That, you know, for streaming corp companies anyway, is, is coupled with the fact that, you know, there's a long-standing myth about music somehow being immaterial. So that feeds into their ability to not offer these, these figures because a lot of people who love music tend not to think about those things, you know, not because they're stupid, but just because, you know, historical, cultural, institutional reasons have prevented them from, from even asking those questions. It speaks to a greater need for transparency on behalf of these corporations so that consumers can, can you know, make 
their own moral considerations about what they do and band together to ask for potentially ask um, regulations on how this how this energy is is provided. Sure. And um, I always have to say this. Obviously, music is only a small part of a much bigger problem. And people are, you know, sometimes ask me, shouldn't you know, why focus on music? Shouldn't we be talking about other things? And well, yes, we should be talking about other things. Um, but music is is a part of the problem. Just because a lot of people happen to really care about music and love it doesn't mean we should hide from the fact that music is a part of that bigger problem. It's hard to know who should be doing what better. And even if that were clearer, our own inability or unwillingness to look critically at that which we can't or don't want to imagine is part of the problem also slows down progress. So why talk about vinyl and MP3s? Not because they are a huge impact, but because it's hard to imagine them having any impact. And yet they do. The music touring industry is far, far worse than the music media industry as far as emissions are concerned. Thanks to musicians and their fans traveling to see shows, the electricity required to power venues, and so on and so forth. But I didn't talk about that because that experience isn't a constant. It's not pervasive and quotidian the way that streaming is. It's not a topic of media ecology fascination and fetishization the way records are. Touring doesn't seem to capture the public's imagination the way vinyl and digital streaming does. I didn't talk about CDs for the same reason. They're also non-biodegradable and non-recyclable, and many, many more of them are produced than records. Still, all of these things are part of the crisis. But, and this is a hypothesis, Maybe it's worth talking about what captures our imagination, what convinces and traps us, more so than what is the biggest problem. Because the biggest problems can feel the most distant and the most unsolvable. I mean, the existence of problems of greater relative size is no reason to not demand better wherever we can, even in the small spots. So maybe those steps are ones in the right direction. So, okay, how do you take those steps? Kyle mentioned that there are a good number of people working on the green disc problem, not just the green vinyl folks who won't email me back. How do you manufacture a green physical music format? Kyle's Bet, which is his next big project. Well, here, I'll, I'm just going to let him say it. I mean, my idea for my next project, which you're free to publish on the podcast if you want, would be to create the, first, the world's first fair trade music format. And that's, those, are the th those are the questions that I'm working on right now. And one potential starting point for that is to try and, try and press a 12-inch record out of bioplastic. I mean, it would, be, it would be a record that you'd recognize as a, as a vinyl record, but it would be made out of, out of plastic made from food waste. The streaming problem is a harder nut to crack. Kyle was clear that the answers will not come from format revivals or looking backward or romanticizing earlier formats. And, and that, that's been a tendency when I've spoken to people. And, and, you know, some people have misinterpreted this research to say that, oh, the environmental effect of the age of streaming is greater than it was in the age of vinyl. We should move back to vinyl. Absolutely not. Another way of answering this is that, is that you know, none of, these, none of these formats are best. Going back to any previous ones and listening the way we do today would be much worse than what we have today. But none of these solutions are good. And so any ways of mitigating this problem of music, recorded music's contribution to, uh, you know, environmental catastrophe, essentially, 
uh, has to come from looking forward and thinking about post-catastrophic uh, recorded media. The solution to streaming is not records, and the solution to records is not a return to biodegradable shellac. The solution to all of this is, um, well, here we are again. The easiest and hardest answer is direct regulation of the petroleum industry. The second easiest, hardest is pressure on the giant corporations fueled by the petroleum industry's products, which is, um, uh, like all of them. So how do you apply that pressure? I mean, appealing to their better nature would be nice, but it seems like economic incentives or disincentives are really the only thing that moves the needle. So we can wait until it becomes more expensive to rely on oil than it is to switch to non-polluting energy sources, which, um, oh, uh, you can't see me. I'm tapping my watch. Or we can try to exert some kind of pressure now ourselves on, if not giant areas of impact, maybe meaningful ones, but here we are back at the meaninglessness of individual choice. Buy a Prius, compost, stream less music. It feels pointless, unless maybe it's paired with intense moral pressure, with like lots of shouting and bad PR, which, um, yeah, there would have to be an incredible amount of all at once. So, I mean, what I'm coming around to is that this isn't a plan, nor is it a solution. It's a pipe dream that some consumer solidarity arises in response to all of this and hastens the changes needed to avoid total catastrophe. That it even is possible to exert enough pressure as consumers that it matters. I mean, Wallace Wells seems to think that it is possible. Many, many other people don't. So, I mean, maybe it is meaningless, but I did stop buying records. I used to buy a lot of records, like I would buy multiple a week, and I just... I don't know, maybe I buy like one a quarter now. I got really tired of sending even the faintest message that I want more plastic in the world, more paper and ink and things delivered on trucks. I try to download more MP3s from Bandcamp mostly, and I try to stream less, but I do still spend all day on my computer anyway, watching YouTube, writing in Google Docs, so I'm not sure how much it's going to really matter. And I mean, these aren't the only things that I've done. You know, like I've stopped ordering from Amazon. I walk to get my groceries. I try to bike more, um, you know. Anyways, I'm not going to end this episode by saying that my choices are good or right or the ones that you should take. I'm flailing in the rising tides over here as much as anyone else. Totally unsure if any of this is helpful, but it does quiet some of my climate anxiety. More than anything... I think of it as practice. We're going to have to give up something or a lot of something sooner or later. So these are my sacrifice training wheels. This is the way I forced myself to focus. The thing that I do the most, the thing that I spend more hours of my day doing than any other single activity, listening to music, has become a reminder that climate change is in everything. And though the problems are bigger than me alone, I do still live within them. And I need to choose, if even very faintly, to do something about them.
My name is Mike Rugnetta, and this podcast has been Reasonably Sound. You can find Reasonably Sound on Twitter and Instagram at ReasonablySND, and you can find me at Mike Rugnetta. Special thanks to Kyle Devine for his time. Be sure to check out his book, Decomposed, The Political Ecology of Music, out October 2019 from the MIT Press. Special thanks also to Miriam Nielsen for her climate research and script help. You can see her work at youtube.com forward slash Zentoro, Z-E-N-T-O-U-R-O, and youtube.com forward slash Hot Mess PBS. You can find links to these things and all of the other sources for this episode in the show notes at reasonablysound.com. Link in the episode description. Thanks to all of Reasonably Sound's patrons and Drip subscribers, with special shoutouts to Harry Brisson, Johnny C., Richard Hansen, David Rorick, Jason Scott, and Vigile. Thank you for the pronunciation guide. Because of how Patreon works, if this episode is your first at the Loudhaler level, you will hear your name at the end of the next episode. I promise I didn't forget about you, but if you have any questions, please don't hesitate to drop me a line. If you like the show and you want to support it, you can do so at Patreon with a per-episode donation at patreon.com forward slash reasonably sound. In related crowdfunding news, in case you didn't hear, Drip is going to be drying up on September 13th. Kickstarter will be shuttering it as a service, and no one will be taking over development. So, if you are a subscriber there, come and join me either on my per-episode Reasonably Sound Patreon, or my monthly personal Patreon, which covers all sorts of things that I'm working on. Speaking of which, soon I'm going to be launching a new podcast project called Fun City. It's a Shadowrun-based tabletop role-playing podcast that I've been working on with some friends for about a year, and it is premiering, coincidentally, on September 13th. We're still working on getting the feed up and running, but if you head over to funcity.ventures, you will be able to take a listen to a short teaser. Reasonably Sound's theme and act break music are by Will Stratton, and its visual design is by Tita Tep.